0: You who are here in the first hour heard me say that that song that we just sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, was the favorite hymn of the gentleman that we're going to be looking at here a little bit together this morning, Jay Gresham Machen, uh, the occasion of all this being, as Luke said earlier, Reformation Sunday. Um, it does really raise a question, though. It's, it's reasonable to ask uh, at, at this point. And that is, in the context of a corporate worship service, is it right to take time to examine the life of a mortal man in any way at all? Is that even right? Is that even appropriate? Well, praise, let me answer that in two ways. On the one hand, not on the one hand, first. First, praise uh, can be found in any one of God's image bearers simply because of the image that they bear and the one in whose likeness that they have been made. That would be one thing to say that's worth noting. And secondly, how much more so in the lives of his people, those that he is transforming slowly but surely to become more and more like him. John Piper, uh, in writing on this, uh, says this, God ordains that we gaze on his glory dimly mirrored in the ministry of his flawed servants. He intends for us to consider their lives and peer through the imperfections of their faith and behold the beauty of their God. So, There is warrant to this. There's much that can be gained from this if if we all have but the humility to listen. But that then begs another question. Why John Gresham Machen, of all people? Why consider him? And I would say there are at least two answers to that. Uh, One would be uh, the thing that he stood for, and secondly, intersecting with that, the times in which we live. We live in a post truth culture. Evidence and facts don't really matter. Perception and feeling is what really trumps everything. Truthiness, truthiness is what matters. Older, wiser heads would call that reality denial. We would do well, we would do well to consider then these words from the book of Jude and lessons then from the life of this man, John Gresham Machen. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me uh, to the book of Jude. It's, uh, I know it's probably not the most well-known of any of the books to say anything of of the New Testament, but it is, if you, easy way to find it, it's the last book in the Bible before Revelation, really short Really easy to miss. When I give you the reference, when I say we're reading Jude 1 through 4, that's verses 1 through 4 because that's all there is. It's just a bunch of verses. There's not chapters. So Jude 1 through 4 is what we're going to look at here uh, together. Hear now God's Word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you for working in the life of this man, Jude, that we could have this read and heard here at this moment. Thank you for your work in our lives your sovereign movement in our lives, bringing us to this place at this moment. With all of that, given all of your wisdom and the intentionality with which you work, we are here for a reason. And we pray that your word would speak to our hearts, however it is, Whatever it is, the state of our hearts may be this morning. Whatever it is, wherever we are, whoever we are, and whatever our state is before you, would you give us ears with which to hear you speaking. You speaking as we delve into your word. And we pray in your name. Amen. Well, who was Jay Gresham Machin? And why should we care? Let me give you a a brief sketch here. I spent an hour in the last hour doing that. This sketch is going to take about 30 seconds. Here we go. Living from 1881 to 1937, Machen was an American Presbyterian theologian in the early 20th century. He was professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary between 1906 and 1929. When the Northern Presbyterian Church rejected his arguments during the mid-20s and decided to move Princeton Seminary in a more liberal direction, Machen took the lead in founding Westminster Theological Seminary. His opposition during the 1930s to liberalism in his denomination's foreign mission agencies led to the creation of a whole new missions group. The trial, conviction, and suspension from the ministry of this group's members, including Machen, Led to the formation of a whole new denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC. Machen's influence can still be felt today through his writings and the institutions he founded, Westminster Theological Seminary, and the OPC. There's so much more that, that could be said on that point. As I said in the last hour, this is, let me just give you a sampling of the Westminster graduates, names that no doubt some of you uh, are, are familiar with. Alistair Begg. Wayne Grudem, Tim Keller, Phil Riken, Francis Schaeffer. Those are all men who've come through that school that J. Gresham Mach had founded with a few others so many years ago. In addition to that, it's worth considering also the lesser-known names, the names that few of us, or if any of us would recognize, who were students under those men, and under certain professors there at Westminster through the years, and now there's several campuses across the country, and those that they trained, and those that they trained. No, I have no doubt we could look at some of the bios of some of the men in, that we just prayed for a few minutes ago, and spread around this world and throughout our, our nation today. I myself am a beneficiary indirectly of men trained, and you trace it back to... Machen, really, when you think about it. So, that then brings us to the letter of Jude. Put that on the side, just for, on the shelf for just a minute. Let's, let's come now to the book of Jude, this letter of Jude. Who is he? He is the brother of James, one of the pillars of the early church, but he's also, and this is well worth noting, I'm going to come back to this in a little while, the half-brother of Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph later on. Now, this is obviously a short letter. When you open it up, you're like, whoa, it's like page and a half. That's right. It's a short letter written in the mid-60s, written to a group of people. Uh, Jude's intent is to warn them of the dangers of false teaching and the need to persevere in the faith. In all of that, he is obviously presupposing historical events, some things that really happened. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ, his, biologically speaking, half-brother his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the tomb. He's presupposing that. That's what he's standing on. It's what it's all based on. All of that is so clear. It's it's the, it's the, the, the rationale, the basis for his great concern. Given that, put it this way, given that all that is true, therein we must hold to that and not drift away from that, not be dissuaded or bamboozled away from that. Since Christ, put it this way, since Christ has accomplished our salvation, we must hold fast to him and reject, resist false ways. But say it again. Since Christ has accomplished our salvation, we must hold fast to him and reject, resist all false ways. And this comes up in three areas, at least three areas, in this text. These four verses we read just a moment ago, it's there in your outline, these three things. First, the clarity of faith comes up. The clarity of faith. Secondly, the reality of danger. And thirdly, the necessity, the necessity to stand. So clarity, reality, necessity. Let's look at these in turn and then some lessons from this gentleman J. Gresham Machen as well. First, the clarity of faith. And by that, this is what I mean. The objective fact of a known and received body of truth relayed through the generations about Jesus and His, and the exclusive means of salvation that we find in him. Okay? The clarity of faith. That's what you see there in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the content of what Jude had intended to write was obviously alludes to this a bit different, something more general. It would seem just kind of reading between the lines, at the very least, exalting, the fellowship that he and his readers had in common with the living God. Now, that's what he had in mind, it would seem. He speaks to that. And we can but imagine what that letter from Jude would have looked like. But we don't have that letter because something shifted his, his course. Something changed his mind. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Because what we have here is not general. It's specific, and it's combative. There, these these are, are strong, you read through this the letter, and it's these are strong statements. They are fighting words, but clearly from the start, Jude was not looking for a fight, but he recognized the necessity of entering into the fight because of the stakes. He's holding forth a body of belief. A body of belief. Again, this last part of verse 3 is, is worth noting here, and then thinking through what he means. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is he referring to here? This is the apostolic teaching handed down by, to the people of God because of the mercy of God. This is the apostolic teaching handed down to the people of God because of the mercy of God, a message. Not advice, but a message of good news. It is a message that is closed in the sense that there's no more to be added to it. It is a message that is closed, so no longer open. And it is a message that does not, I mean, excuse me, Jude is alluding to this. It is a message that does not ultimately come from man, comes through man, But ultimately, it comes from God. There's a lot here in the phrasing of of what he is speaking of. Uh, This um, faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Given what it is, and given its source, what Jude is saying is, this is not just A, but the objective standard by which anything that is true and false can be measured. And can be gauged and can be assessed. How does it square with the truth, the faith handed down once for all to the saints? That's your mark. That's the rule by which everything is measured. Now, thinking of, uh, of Machin and thinking of our own times, I'll just say this is that Jude is setting before us here the clarity of the faith, the clarity of the faith. Now, thinking in terms of, of Machin, it's worth knowing. The context, something of the context of his labors in the 20s and 30s. Now, at that time, there were others, a certain group of people, who had identified certain fundamentals of the faith. That's a much larger, longer discussion. But those, those fundamentals of the faith, as we talked about last hour, are the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, uh, Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the tomb, and the reality of his miracles. Okay? And those were identified as the, the fundamentals. But there were others who said, no, those things that you say are so fundamental, and that if we lose sight of, actually, those are negotiables. Those are negotiables. In fact, they are, they are relatively unnecessary to Christianity. This is the context of Machen and the debates raging at, at the time. Desiring to be relevant... These other parties were saying, desiring to be relevant, desiring to be heard by the larger culture, they said, look, Christianity becomes real. It becomes relevant and meaningful as it is borne out in experience. To which Machen said, wait, Christianity, yes, should be real and meaningful and it should bear itself out in our experience. But it can only do that if it's true. It can only do that if it's anchored in reality and space and time and verifiable history. Otherwise, we're just building into the air. It's why 1 Corinthians 15 that was read earlier, that's part of Paul's argument there. If the resurrection of Jesus is not an historical fact, let's go home. What's the point? It has to be based on reality. Well, I I would just say that we need Machen's sort of incisive, clear thinking today. I don't know how many of you watch football, college, pros, whatever. Sometimes you see the cameras don't usually put... The zoom in on a player when this is happening, but when they've been concussed and you see the trainer coming over to them with the smelling salts, we need the smelling salts. We really, really do. Because we act, we, act, we move along, we think along as though we've been concussed. As though somehow this could be helpful without it being real. It has to be real, it is real, and that's why it's helpful. Some of you may have heard of a recent survey that was done, uh, the State of Theology. State of Theology. You can go up and look at uh, the results and, and the methodology of it if you're interested in that kind of thing online. Uh, it's free to the public. The State of Theology, a cross-section of Americans were done, a wide breadth and, and, and questions of, of deep spiritual implications were asked. I think it was some 3,000 was the core sample, which is a pretty good from a statistical standpoint. And the trends, the discovery, the, st- the stats, the results are confusing and concerning. Because on the one hand, most of us, broadly speaking in the American public, would say, I don't know about most, but a, a large number would say, yes, The Bible actually is true. Mm -hmm. And yet, also, a very large number would say, when it comes to ethics and moral issues, it's all up for grabs. Do what you want. Do you see how those two things don't really connect very well? Because if it's true, it's true. And it's not up for grabs. And yet in our muddled way of thinking and feeling, oh my goodness. But I have to say this before we go any further, and that is before we start pointing fingers and saying, what's the matter with you for believing in such ways? We have to ask some questions of ourselves and ask, in what ways have we contributed to this? And in what ways are we affected by this? and be humble enough to deal with the answers. Christ has accomplished our salvation. We must hold fast to him, reject false ways. Well, that then brings us to the reality of the danger. Moving from uh, the the first point, we move to the reality of the danger. Now, obviously, I said this a moment ago, something shifted Jude's agenda, his original idea, his original plan, what he had intended to to write to them about. Something shifted. What was it? There had been an incursion. It had been an incursion, or put it another way, using a different metaphor, there were wolves running loose amidst the flock. And he writes about this in verse 4. It's a pretty striking language. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I said incursion, you can say it's an infection a twisting and distorting of the gospel message not just not just forgiveness of sin but freedom from sin and along with that it would seem also a denial of the uniqueness and supremacy of Jesus does that not sound contemporary? Twenty-first century and first century. This is what Jude is speaking of here. All through individuals in his day, described as, and I'll just just quickly say, uh, as this is what's happening is predicted, and their behavior is creeping, godless, sensual, and heretical. That's what had happened. Why is that a big deal? What are the stakes? What is it that's being threatened? At least two things. If you just think in terms of verses one through four, at least two things you see here are threatened here. And the first would be, if you go back in verse one, the new identity that we have in the gospel in Christ. Look at how how Judas describes himself. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude describes himself as, yes, obviously, a brother of James, which he was full-on, you know, same mother, same father, but he, didn't, he mentions nothing. We know this, though, from extra-biblical writings. We know that he was, in fact, a half-brother of Jesus. But he mentions nothing about that. Why? Because of who his brother was. Not just, hey, bro, but this is the Lord Jesus Christ, whom in verse 4 he describes as being our only Master and Lord. And so Jude, can the best he can do, the strongest thing that he can say of himself is, I am a servant, literally a slave of Jesus. You see, the humbling effect, the humbling effect that the gospel has, it goes right to the root of our identity. A servant of Jesus, a bond slave of Jesus, Jesus, but not just, not, not just the, the new identity that we have, but a, a rich assurance that we can have as well. How does he describe the people that he is writing to here? Verse Reading on in verse 1 on to verse 2, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Do you catch that? Called, beloved, and kept. This is who they were now in Christ. This is who they are now called, beloved, and kept. And what does Jesus want for them? Mercy, peace, and love. The new identity, this rich assurance, that's what's at stake. That's the the treasures that we have in Christ, in the gospel, because of his finished work. And that's what's at stake. That's the bedrock the finished work of Jesus is the bedrock upon which all those things stand, rest, are built. And the bedrock, Judas saying, is being threatened. So the stakes are high. There's reality, red flag reality of danger. Now Machen understood this. He was not just an academic, but he was an academic with a pastoral heart. He knew the stakes. He knew all too well that... Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. Right, To the degree that you believe a thing, good or bad, it has implications in your life, good or bad. Ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. Listen to these quotes from his classic work, Christianity and Liberalism. These are the first two quotes in your quotes and notes. Let me read these. The grace of God is rejected by modern liberalism, and the result is slavery, the slavery of the law, the wretched bondage by which man undertakes the impossible task of establishing his own righteousness as a ground of acceptance with God. It may seem strange at first that liberalism, of which the very name means freedom, should in reality be wretched slavery, but the phenomenon is not really strange. Emancipation from the blessed will of God always involves bondage to some worse taskmaster. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin, such as the sermon. Machen was deeply concerned. And well, he should have been. And we should be too. Now back to Jude. We dare not be naive. Jude is not the only one, of course, to warn us of the dangers of false teaching. Peter does. John does, Paul does, and repeatedly so. In, in, in all their letters, you see this coming up again and again. And they are but spokesmen for Jesus, whose words we read quoted for us there in the Gospels, who also warns us of the harmful effects of false teaching. We, need to, we dare not be naive. We must grapple with the reality of false teaching teaching and its dangers for damaged doctrine damages people. Damaged doctrine damages people. Think back to what we read from Psalm 1 just a little while ago. And the stark contrast between what is rooted and flourishing and what dries up and is blown away like chaff in the wind. There's a reality about these things of which we dare not be naive. Christ has accomplished our salvation. We must hold fast to him and uh, reject false ways, which takes us to the third point, the third thing here in your outline. It takes us to the necessity to stand. The certainty of the faith, the reality of the danger The necessity to stand, and and we see this again in in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's two things here. First, the, the what we're to do. The what we are to do, and it's quite clear, to contend for the faith. This is an image, this contending Uh, word, uh, conjures up the image of an an athletic competition, the athletic arena, likely a wrestling match is, is what Jude envisions here. A struggle that is strenuous, that may well need to be continuous and may well cost us something along the way to contend. This contending, what will it mean? What will it involve? At least, at the very least, Mental exertion to try and and, and grapple with and understand opposing ideas, these false teachings, so that we know how to counter them. How to address them. Mental exertion. And moral exertion as well. Striving not just to talk about this, but to walk it out to live it out, to live in a way consistent with the faith that we profess, most especially in times of duress. What are we to do? Jude tells us to contend for the faith. That's the what. But What is the how? Contending in the faith. Contending in the faith. The what is, what we're to do is to contend for the faith. How are we to do it? To contend in the faith. Again, consistency is demanded here to do so in a way that, that lines up, that, is, that, that tracks with the faith that we proclaim, that we profess. We are to contend with conviction. That's at least part of what that has to mean. Conviction as to whose hand is upon us, whose strength is in us, who ordains all times, and who alone can change hearts. Conviction. Conviction. But also compassion. Those two have to go together if we're to be consistent with the faith that's been handed down. Conviction, but also compassion. Think with me here. It is not the gospel of grace for which we are contending if we are not gracious. It is not the gospel of grace for which we are contending if we are not gracious. I mentioned Francis Schaeffer a minute ago as uh, one of the graduates of Westminster Seminary. And Francis Schaeffer, short little book uh, called The Mark of the Christian, well worth all of our reading, spoke of the greatest apologetic. Now what do you think that was? Love. Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century in terms of his ability to make and engage in intellectual arguments with the people of his day, said that the greatest of apologetics is love. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it's so very, very clear. We must always speak the truth in love, and otherwise it's better not to speak at all. Just don't talk. If you're speaking out of something that's other than love, it is better for you to shut up. Loose translation of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. Jude is speaking here of the necessity to stand, absolutely, to contend what and the how, and those two things, we dare not pull them apart. How about J. Gresham Mention? How did he do in this? Well, he was a human being, feet of clay. Biographers differ in terms of what they say about, about this. I would just say, I think it seems that he spoke with great compassion, wrote with great compassion, but you know, the fact is, given the context, when you're constantly in combat, you tend to shout. Now, I was just thinking about this, Sarah and I were talking about this the other day, a, a, a trip that I took with one of our kids to a, a Virginia Tech football game there in Lane Stadium with 40,000 plus friends around us going crazy, and you can't hear a thing in the opening minutes of the game, and said child was just in, you know, uh, input overload, and I'm trying to communicate, hang in there, da 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 and I'm shouting But I have to so that said child can hear me. But I'm not screaming. Understand? But I'm having to shout, but it looks like I'm screaming. Machen looked like he was screaming. He sure did shout. He had to. He preached his last sermon at Princeton on March 3, 1929. It was entitled, The Good Fight of Faith. In it, he examined the life of the Apostle Paul and pointed out that the chief battles that Paul fought were within his own camp. And it had to be that way. You go back and read his letters and you realize, oh my goodness, he's right. Which meant it was conflict around him all the time. Not that he caused, per se, but that he had to engage in. And it was something paradoxical at work in the life of Paul, and that's what Machen is pointing out in that sermon. It's it's odd in that, but it makes sense, in that the peace that comes only with the gospel, given the stakes, sends us into battle. You see how odd, paradoxical, confusing almost that is? The, the, The peace alone that we find in Christ is what sends us into the battle. And that peace alone also is the only thing that sustains us in the battle. It's what Mation said in, in the sermon. It's in your quotes and notes. I think it's the third one down. Those who have been at the foot of the cross will not be afraid to go forth under the banner of the cross to a holy war of love. Peace indeed is yours, the peace of God which passeth all understanding, but that peace is given you, not that you may be onlookers or neutrals in love's battle, but that you may be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, those words are not just for seminarians in 1929. Those are words for us. Those are words for all of us here today. With the gospel, we have peace, a peace that sends us into the battle and a peace that alone will sustain us in that battle. Again, Christ, Christ has accomplished our salvation. We must hold fast to him, reject, resist all false teaching, all false teaching. Wrapping this up. Stakes are clear, very clear. Do we have any guarantees? The stakes are clear. Do we have any guarantees? Well, in one sense, you could say no. We actually have no no, no guarantees whatsoever as to what's going to happen to us. You, You think of Machen's experience, right? He's constrained to leave, resign his post from his beloved Princeton. Uh, he was forced out of the church in which he was ordained. And at age 55, which seems younger and younger to me all the time, at age 55, he died of pneumonia, New Year's Eve, 1937, after an exhausting round of speaking engagements in the frigid temperatures of North Dakota. And many would look at a life like that, you know, this meteoric rise, and then, and say, What a waste. What an untimely death. Don't you see? We have no guarantees. Mm, Right. But in another sense, we have every guarantee. We have every guarantee. For truly in the Lord's sight, nothing is untimely. Nothing is wasted. Nothing. Even in this life, in our days, in your day, in your life, The risen Jesus Jesus is working in, William Cooper, the great hymn writer, said, mysterious ways. Even in this life. And then what is to come? Oh my goodness, we have the assurance that one day that same Jesus is going to return. And when he does, our faith will be made sight, all wrongs will be made right, all is going to be well again like it was once before, and all of his beloved witnesses will be upheld. That ain't bad. Christ has accomplished our salvation. We need to hold fast to him and resist all false teaching. Let's pray. Lord, yours is a love beyond our fathoming. You give us in your word not only instruction and assurance and encouragement, but again, also out of love, the warnings and admonishments that we need. And we do need all of that. And we need models. We need examples. We need to see what does this look like and so you put us in community, a community of brothers and sisters, fellow saints around us now and before us, having preceded us in this journey. So this morning we do praise you for your work in the life of Jay Gresham Machen, his gifts and his insight and his courage, all of which that you gave him. Thank you for all of your means by which you care for your church. May we be heartened this morning and take heed and take heed to the beauty and the necessity of the truth. We pray in your name, Amen.